and welcome to Talking Ball, brought to you by HP Polly. I'm Nicola Hume. We are here in Milton Keynes talking all things Oracle Red Bull Racing. Now, today, we are joined by two men who play a huge role, making sure that the team performs to the peak of its powers. So, first of all, we have Head of Performance Engineering, it's Ben Waterhouse, and Chief Designer, Craig Skinner. Guys, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having us. Are you thank in the middle you. of a really busy day and I've just taken you away from your day? Every day is a busy day. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't stop, unfortunately. I want to start with you, Ben, actually. Um, you've been here for quite a while, haven't you, here at Red Bull? When did you first start? The first time I started, actually, was back in 2003. So it was actually before Red Bull. When it was uh, Jaguar. When it was Jaguar. Yeah. And um, I stayed here until 2008. Had a small hiatus when I went to Europe for, for nine years. And then I came back in 2017, and then I've been here since then. It's okay. We, we can talk about the time you went away. You went and joined BMW and, and Toro Rosso, right? Yeah. So how was your experience with them versus being back here at Red Bull? Obviously, something kind of enticed you to come back again. Yeah, I always, I always enjoyed my time at Red Bull. And I think the, the attraction to going to Switzerland in the first place was just that, you know, myself and my wife hadn't travelled so much, and the opportunity to go to Switzerland seemed too good to be true. And we really liked snowboarding, mountain biking, all the other attractions of Switzerland. And then uh, ultimately, the lure of coming back to the UK was too strong. And then I wanted to come back to Red Bull. But you were here before Christian Horner even joined. So, yes. so how was that, having this young principal take over? I mean, he was 31 at the time. What, what was that like when he joined? How much did it change? It, it was exciting because, I mean, Jaguar had been progressing, but it was very, very slow. And then when Red Bull took over the team, there was a huge amount of excitement that something is going to change, it's going to be better. Obviously, Christian arrived, and that's when there was a, there was a sea change in attitude across the team. The, the view was to say, we're not here just to participate, we are here to win. And then, of course, Adrian joined, and, and then things really started to take off. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a really exciting time. And then you left. <laughs> yes. For, for entirely really selfish reasons. And but... then you left. But you were gone for when there were championships being won here. You missed out on 2010 to it 2013. Was, you missed out. It was pretty galling at the time, especially, you know, as BMW had been going in a positive way. And then, of course, they pulled out and it's like, oh, what am I doing? <laughs> and I did actually speak to Adrian about coming back, but I, I enjoyed this, the snowboarding, the other aspects of Switzerland you know, tax, I think, was 10% at the time. So there were some, <laughs> there were some nice attractions. And uh, so we chose to stay out there for a while. And it, it was a good decision for us at the time. But, you know, the, the attraction and the law was still, was still strong. So eventually you came back in 2017. And now, I mean, Red Bull are on fire at the moment, just kind of winning everything. So how does it feel to actually experience a winning situation? <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's, it's really good. I mean, the first time that... Uh, I experienced a sort of a race win was at BMW, but that was a one-off. It's quite fortuitous. And then since I've been back at Red Bull, we've won every year, but we've been very much building to try and get to this position because I missed that period from 2010 to 13. And um, I think now that we've actually managed to achieve it already in 21 and then into 22, it's, it's a fantastic feeling, but we know it's not forever and we have to keep pushing very hard to maintain it. You know, competition is very, very tough. And they're coming back very quickly. Well, here's the thing. I mean, we have to talk about your job. So you are a performance engineer. But what is that? It's kind of like a catch-all term, isn't it? Like, So what is your day-to-day? -day? What do you actually do in terms of performance engineering? 
So I lead quite a, it's not a huge group, but it's, it's, a, it's a decent sized group covering lots of different disciplines. And our focus is to really optimize the performance of the car on sort of short term, medium term and long term basis. Um, short term is more about race weekends. Can we get the optimum out of the car for, you know, next race? But then beyond that, we're looking at in-season developments. How can we improve the usage of the tyre, the usage of the aerodynamic characteristic? And then longer term, we're looking more at, you know, next year, 2025, even 2026 now already. And so I have lots of different, very skilled people within the team and we build all our own tools and it's all about trying to, to lead them in the right direction so that we can deliver the performance which we need to achieve on the racetrack. Well, so how much prep is, is currently going into everything for 2026? Because it's all big regulation changes. Like how hands-on can you get with that at the moment without knowing as much detail? So we're working on the, on the power unit regulations because they are quite well defined. So there's simulation work that's required for that. Um, the chassis regulations are still in discussion. And we are supporting that with ideas and um, making sure our tools are able to operate with those new uh, regulations. And um, so we're, we're, we're focusing some time, but of course, we have to be careful about balancing that time with what we're doing right now. Mm. So what's your day to day here at the factory? Because you, you are based here, right? That's right. So what's your kind of, I guess every day is different for you, is it? Yeah, no two days are the yeah. same. You know, we always have, you know, we have drivers in the simulator we have new we have meetings on talking about new car developments we have issues which are based on the previous race weekend what can we do to improve that what can we do to make sure it doesn't happen again so it's always very dynamic something different is happening every day so like as we are recording this we are building up to a race weekend so how different is this week compared to like a regular week where there's not a race weekend um, there's always a bit of a sort of a, a crescendo as we're sort of building towards it. You know, the simulation results are coming in. We're making decisions in terms of setup choices. Uh, we had Max in earlier in the week to do some setup work in the simulator. And then we'll move towards pre-event discussion so that everyone's on the same page. They know what test items are being planned. What do we need to make sure we're analyzing on Friday? And then we'll make decisions through the weekend, all with a view to saying we can make the right choice in terms of tires, setup strategic decisions during the race and then hopefully we'll get the result on Sunday. I mean obviously like when it comes to creative performance it's mainly about speed but also about safety and reliability so how do you kind of level out which is the most important thing? Craig looks after most of those things. <laughs> He's more, more, more looks after the safety and the reliability. I, I think from from our side we're trying to balance that risk versus reward. There's aspects we can take a lot of, of risk on, but depending on sort of our attitude to risk, which varies on the car performance level, we are either more conservative or less so in some of our choices. Oh, I'd love to hear your answer to that as well. Then, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, we always have a we have a, a duty of care towards the driver to look after them in the event of a crash. So there's very strict FIA sort of crash tests, impact tests that we have to pass, and we certainly never ever. You know, we, we always take those incredibly seriously. So we are always we always pass the FA test fully. And in terms of reliability, again, it's always about how how far are you prepared to push the performance of a of a component? How long is it going to last? Because now in the cost cap area, you know, you can't just change parts every single race because it costs a lot of money. So it's that balance between how long is a part going to last versus how much performance can it give. So yeah, that's a constant balance that we have to evaluate. So when did you first join Red Bull? So I joined in January 2006. So okay. I was actually, I was about one month before Adrian joined. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, and I've, I've, unlike Ben, 
I've stayed here ever since. So, <laughs> so yeah, I've been here yeah, just over 17 years now. And you weren't always part of the design team, though, were you? No. I, so I originally joined as a CFD engineer. Mm. So I did all uh, on the sort of simulation side. So I joined in the aerodynamics department. And I was uh, in the aerodynamics department until about the beginning of 2021. And oh, I recently? Moved, yeah, so recently. And then I moved over to the design office to as chief designer to sort of head up that side. So what's the difference between the two then? It, the, to be honest, it's a common goal. You, at the end of the day, you want a, uh, you want the fastest race car, but you just have to do it in very different ways. I mean, aerodynamics, you're always thinking about how can you make the car faster? What, how can you push the, what loopholes can you find, you know, to, to push the shape of the car? The design office is then responsible for actually making it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and often those two things don't always balance up, you know, how, how can we make it light enough, strong enough, things like that. And aerodynamic, the aerodynamics will always make things that are far too thin that you cannot make. So it's that sort of balance and being able to see it from both sides has been, has been really useful to then make sure that we sort of bring everybody together and sort of end up with a car that's actually fast but also reliable. Well, that's the thing. It seems like the, the, the aero guys are like the dreamers and then the design guys are like... Yeah, the, the realists. Yeah, so, so, yeah. <laughs> so you got to find you got to find that bit in the middle. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure on you to be able to get all of this stuff and put it in this little package that then travels two hundred and twenty mile an hour. Yeah, I mean it's it's a hugely complicated bit of engineering. Yeah, with thousands of parts that all must work perfectly all at once, and so it's about bringing all those sort of groups together of suspension, systems, cooling, you know, hydraulics, all this stress stress guys you know getting all of those working together such that everything comes together as one package on track yeah and then everything all has has to like weigh a certain amount at different parts of the car because that's well, exactly. going to change we've everything got, i've got ben breathing down my neck saying we want the car to do this or this and then the aerodynamics is saying we want this so it's about you know everybody's got different requirements that you have to balance so you two kind of communicate with each other quite often then yeah, it's normally pushing Craig to say, we want to achieve this. How are you going to find a solution to make it happen? We're a bit like the aerodynamicists. So you're Always the dreamer, pushing. he's yeah. the naysayer. But then we, <laughs> we also have the ability with our simulation tools to be able to arbitrate and say, well, this one's quicker than this one. So we can also try and steer it, not that we would, obviously, in the, the way which we think is the best. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, all the decisions are always usually based on data. So it's again, if Ben comes up with a simulation and say, look, this this setup or this whatever I want to do with the suspension is worth this, then it's like, okay, let's so find a way to do it. How did you both uh, end up where you are now? Did you did you go to uni, study engineering, all that kind of thing? What what did you both do? So, yeah, I went, I did, I studied aeronautical engineering at University of Glasgow. And then when I finished university, I tried to, I've always wanted to get into Formula One and I tried to get into Formula One. But back when I finished university, Formula One teams tended not to do graduate schemes. So it was quite difficult. People always wanted experience and you didn't have any. So I got a job with one of the CFD simulation uh, vendors and I ended up becoming the technical support engineer for Red Bull, Williams and what was Jordan at the time. And then it was through that that I then got a job as a CFD engineer here. And then I've just sort of worked my way up since then. Well, I heard that you wrote a letter to Adrian Newey that's correct. To yeah. ask for advice of how to get into Formula yes, One. When, and he replied, when right? He, when he was at McLaren, yes. Yeah, I've still got the letter. Have yeah. you? Yeah, he doesn't remember it at all. But uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yes, no, I asked, I wrote a letter to him asking for advice on how to get into Formula One. And he told about how he'd done, he'd gone, he'd done aeronautical engineering and how he'd sort of got into Formula One. So yeah, I sort of tried to follow a similar path. So have you come across a moment yet where you've had to say no to him? 
Yes, yes. <laughs> must many, feel many, weird. many occasions, but yes, yeah. But that's the thing. We we have quite an open, and you have to have these open conversations with people to say that things. Off, off. I mean, I've told Ben though as well that when things don't Regularly. work, <laughs> when yeah. things don't work or it's not possible, then you have to have these conversations, mm. and then ultimately you end up finding a common ground and a way forward. How about yourself, then, Ben? How did you end up where you are? It's quite similar to Craig in that I always knew I wanted to work in Formula One, and sort of your your education, university choices. I went to Loughborough, I did automotive engineering because I knew I wanted to be on the sort of vehicle dynamics side. And I also didn't manage to get into Formula One straight away. So I actually worked for ProDrive, which was one of the sort of big automotive consultancies that also had British touring cars, Subaru World Rally cars at the same time. So, and then it was actually, I knew somebody here who said there's a job coming up, applied, and then I got in here as to Jaguar as it was at the time. So do you, I mean, I know you kind of work together often, but I also hear that you like to train in the gym together. Is that right? I think There's a very nice gym here, right? It's a really lovely gym. We're, we're well catered for. I think what I see is Craig goes and smashes himself and there'll be a, he'll, he'll be completely red-faced and I'll be like, no, no, I'm not, not sure about that today. <laughs> Does it get a little bit competitive between the two of you? No, no. It has in the past. It has in the past. Yeah. <laughs> I know I'll lose. So. I tend to, it's, it's, a good, it's a good stress relief, so I tend to, whenever I'm in the gym, I was like, yeah, well. Yeah. I'll go hard, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your what's your day-to-day like here at the factory then? Well, it depends. Like if it's just after a race weekend, there's often you have to go through any faults that have been for the weekend. What do we need to fix for the next race? Mm-hmm. You know, and then there's a lot of um, working on the next upgrades for this season. You know, what we're we producing for you know, upcoming races. We've got update packages coming. And then, like Ben, there's a lot of work now going into next year's car, so RB20 looking at how we're going to lay the car out, what do we want to achieve, what does Ben want, what do aerodynamics want, and then how does that going to affect how we lay out the car. So there's, yeah, it varies day to day. Yeah, I mean, it all sounds a bit bonkers because you're kind of, you're preparing for this weekend or you're preparing for next year or now you're preparing for 2026. It's, it's quite a lot to take on, isn't it? It is. You, you've, got, you've always got to keep looking forward. You've got to pay attention to what you're doing right now because mm. we've got a race coming. We've got, yeah. to, we've got to aim to do the best we can. But then also you've got to make sure you're still at the front going forward. You can never sit back and think, oh, I'll, I'll do it next week because somebody else will overtake you. I think that's the problem. The job is never done. It's, it's something where you can never say it's complete and we've finished it and we can just have, have a rest. There's always more performance to be found or more weight to be taken out of the car or more aerodynamic performance to be found. So there's just a constant search to, to improve. So kind of after every race weekend, you have celebration. From what I heard from Hannah Schmitz when we had her on, you have a bit of pizza, celebration, glass of bubbly, and then Monday morning, back at it. Well, that's it. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, we like we have a fault after every race. There's a faults meeting first thing on a Monday morning. So yes, you have to celebrate the win, but then you also have to say, right, what, what went wrong? What do we need to fix? Because if that happens again, then we might, we might, you know, it might be race ending for us. How are you finding the atmosphere here in Milton Keynes? No, it's, good. it's good. Yeah, it's good. There's a good feeling sort of around the team and we've got lots of new faces arriving with powertrains. You know, it's now a big campus. There's a lot of people here and uh, but everyone's like super positive about how the car's performing mm-hmm. and, and wants to continue and uh, see it maintained. Being successful, successful definitely helps. But I mean, I think what you have to remember is that we've not always been here. There's been times when other teams have been winning everything. So you've got to keep that in the back of your mind that you have to always just keep pushing forward. So how would you compare this atmosphere at Red Bull compared to how it was when it was Jaguar? Um, it's, it's very different. I mean, in Jaguar times, it was all about the process. It was, I guess it was a relic of Ford. 
everything was there had to be a number to define everything in a spreadsheet that went with it and just follow the process and the performance will come. It just wasn't coming quick enough. And whereas now I think we live a lot more, we, we put a lot of process in, but we also are creative and have freedom to be able to diverge from that when required because it doesn't matter ultimately how you achieve the outcome, but you have to achieve the outcome, which is a fast car and achieve the performance. So that, that's our aim. And we're, we're more open to different ideas, I think, than, than how it was in the past. So on a, uh, on a previous episode, we were chatting to uh, Anna Groom, who works in aerodynamics, and she was showing us uh, a part of the car that she used in the wind tunnel. And it was interesting to find that like the smallest little detail of moving something just a centimetre would make such a massive difference to the airflow in the car. And that's the case with every single part within a car, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. So how much trial and error, like how many failures do you have to have until you've absolutely nailed it? I mean, at the moment, this year has just been amazing, but people don't see the build-up and the failures to get to this point, right? Well, I think it's also the key is to minimise the failures. So it's about understanding what you're, what you're doing and trying to make those incremental steps. You're always going in the right direction. Yes, you'll sort of go off in the wrong direction a few times, but it's about minimising those. Because if you just scatter gun, you know, ideas, then you will, you'll have, you know, your hit rate will be quite low. So it's, especially in the cost cap era and we're budget limited, you have to make sure that you've, your hit rate for performance gains is really, really high. And that's about making sure you've got the tools and the people in place to, you know, always make sure you're making the right decision. We have to have the understanding. It's mostly about if we have the understanding, and as Craig says, we can at least make sure that the next step is going to be in the right direction. And it may deviate, but you can. the more you understand, the higher the percentage chance that you make a positive step. And I think the, uh, the interesting thing is the times when you really learn is when you get it wrong. And we've done that in the past. You make the big failures and you have something go drastically wrong. You delve into it into far more detail, but what you learn from doing that is is really rewarding, and then you can apply it, and it helps you to look, jump forward in the future. I mean, it's so it's so interesting to see uh, each race weekend, and you're you're watching, I mean, Max winning a race by twenty three seconds, and and you're seeing the pundits go, "What are Red Bull doing that all the other teams aren't doing? What are you doing that all the other teams aren't doing? Because whatever you're doing, it's right." We we we. We genuinely don't know because all we do, we're just focusing on ourselves. We can't worry about what other people are doing or not doing. Yeah. We can only just do the best that we can. And we just focus every day and every week on, on making ourselves better. And as, as Ben said earlier, we are never, ever done. Even at, when, when RB18, we won the championship, you know, we, we'd won loads of races. Even at the end, we sat down and said, right, what, what's wrong with this car? What do we need to do to make better? What do the drivers want out of this car to go faster? And then we implemented that in RB19. So yeah, it's just this constant progression. So even with a car that is championship winning, you're finding things wrong with it to fix. Yeah. That's it's, crazy. It's one continuous optimization problem. There's, there's always scope to improve it a little bit here, a little bit there. And I think as Craig said, it's, it's the summation of thousands of small improvements, which just lead to incremental gains. And then RB19 is that much quicker than RB18. And I hope RB20 is another step forward over RB19. That's what, yeah, that's what I was wondering. I mean, how are you feeling about next year? Can, can you improve? Can you get faster and better? Well, we certainly hope so. Yeah. I think the big question is, is, what is everyone else going to do? Because everyone else might make bigger jumps than we have. So you always just need to make sure that you're, you're as far ahead as you can, but you never know. It's a relative competition at the end. And, you know, it doesn't matter how, all the cars are fast. It doesn't matter how fast we are. If somebody else has made a faster car, we're not fast enough. 
I also have to ask, because you see it like races like uh, like Monaco, where the car got lifted off by the crane and then everyone's having a good old sneak peek at the floor. Do things like that worry you at all? People having a little sneak peek at your car and seeing if to they can honest, copy what probably, you're doing? They've probably seen pictures of, of our car already. I mean, most teams have photographers up and down the pit lane, you know, taking pictures of, comp of, of the competition. Mm. And they're going to see it at some point whether they can recreate it is a separate issue and it's not just the floor that you know that adds the, yeah. the performance of the car it's the entire package of the car and mm. unless you've got the whole thing then yeah you might not you might not be able to reproduce it so i mean there must have been a few moments maybe a few years ago when it was a bit more mercedes dominance where you would kind of just have a little look at what they're doing you, yeah, i mean you're always <laughs> looking at competitors and you get ideas yeah. from from cars up and down the, the grid from yeah. the front to the back of the grid there's always ideas and you're always you, I think we always need to think that we've not done the best job. Mm. So other people will have good ideas. And if we can take those and add them to our car, then that's a good thing. Talking Ball is brought to you by HP Poly. Poly provide best-in-class communications hardware solutions for the Oracle Red Bull Racing team, both at the track and back at the factory. Their premium audio and video products allow the team to focus on what they do best, winning world championships. To find out more about what Polly can offer your business, visit their website at polly.com. Ensure you have your best meeting anywhere, anytime, every time. Now, back to the podcast. So here on Talking Ball, we have a thing called 100 Objects, where every guest is going to come in and bring in something that is significant to their time here at Red Bull. I mean, we've had a lot so far. We've had the Constructors Trophy. We had Adrian Newey brought in his really awesome notebook. And then we had a laptop or just little things that might mean something to you. It could be just a pen or something simple. So I'd love to see what you, <laughs> what you two have brought in. Uh, I have to start with you, Craig, because I can't not start with with you because um what's that so th this <laughs> this is the exhaust system from rb8 so in right. back in 2012 so in this was a project that i worked on it was actually a really interesting project at the time and it was one of those things that where you in making big performance improvements in formula one is quite rare and but this was one of them where we actually made sort of a giant step overnight so on rb7 we had the exhausts down in the floor and we used to blow the exhaust down to the diffusion it gave us a lot of downforce the fia for 2012 changed the regulations and said right the exhaust tailpipe which is this part here must be above a certain height and it must be pointing upwards because they didn't want the exhaust being directed into the floor so what we did was we put a bodywork out the back of the exhaust and the idea was you'd get the exhaust flow to stick to the bodywork and then run down into the into the diffuser. But when the car was launched on track, it wasn't we weren't getting the performance we were expecting. And what we actually eventually found out was when every time a cylinder fires on, in the engine, you get an, a pressure pulse that runs up here. So at the exhaust pipe, you basically got all these pulses firing as, as the exhaust is flowing. And what it was doing was it was picking the exhaust flow up off the bodywork and sort of just sending out here. Right. So it wasn't going where we wanted to. So what we ended up doing was we added this to the exhaust, which is called a resonator. So what happens is the pressure pulses come up the exhaust, they run up this tube, bounce back, and then cancel out the next pressure pulses coming out of the exhaust. So wow. what you actually end up with, rather than this pulsing flow, you end up with a steady state flow. And the steady, well, sort of more constant, less transient, and it, then it stuck to the bodywork and ran down to the it ran down to the diffuser. So we introduced this at Valencia 2012, and it was one of those just moments where I was like, wow, we've, we've got a lot of downforce. 
and Sebastian Vettel put the car on pole by half a second. And then during the race, he was pulling out one second a lap at the beginning of the race until unfortunately the car retired with an alternator failure, which was on the engine, which was a completely separate issue. But this was one of those moments that then, right, we've actually, we've, we've unlocked a huge amount of potential here. And then this, we continued to develop this actually throughout the rest of the season and then onto RB9. But it was, it was, this was like one of those moments where it was like, right, massive performance. And that was game. all down to that bit. That bit added to the exhaust. Yeah. That's incredible. And uh, do you feel quite, feel free to feel smug about it. Do you feel smug about it? I don't feel smug. I feel quite proud because yeah. it was a project that was like a lot of people worked on it yeah. and, and there was a huge amount of performance that came out of it. And I think this actual exhaust won Japan with Sebastian Vettel in 2012. Amazing. So, so yeah, so it's one of those things that I'm really proud that I was involved with. And I, uh, I'm not going to mention the uh, nickname that you told me earlier. Of no, what you don't. Call it. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to add that into our Hall of Fame. Thank you so much, Craig. Over to you, Ben. What have you brought with you? So my story is not quite as uh, exciting as Craig's. Um, I mean, I obviously arrived here when I was only 23, 24 years old, sort of wide-eyed, very excited. And what I've brought in is the Red Bull Racing RB1, which was actually the first Formula One car that I worked on from start to finish. And my responsibility at the time was very much in terms of um, stressing various components, front suspension, rear suspension. And having seen the whole process from start to beginning, it was kind of really eye-opening and it confirmed where I wanted to work for the future, which ultimately was not stressing components, which is what I did at the time. It was more about the vehicle dynamics and actually defining what those suspensions should look like rather than being sort of further down the line and realising the components. So is that is that a model that you have at home? Is that your own personal model or it's it not actually, in your office? It, 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 I have one like this. It's just it's in storage because we're moving homes at the minute. So, so have I you nicked that from somewhere here in the factory? It, yes. Have you nicked it from the gift shop? Uh, I, wish, I wish I had. It would have been a lot easier and cost me a lot less. <laughs> so what would you say is the difference between this and the RB19, like to compare the two cars? I mean, this by comparison, this, this looks very simple. This is certainly before... Red Bull made its steps in terms of aerodynamics and the sort of fidelity with which we optimised the car. And it, it looks very simple, like all old Formula One cars do, compared to the you know, three-dimensional surfaces that we have now. So, yeah, it looks very agricultural, I'd say. Okay, it's time for Ask Red Bull. So we've got members of the Oracle Red Bull Racing paddock to submit some questions for you. So our first three are actually by video. So over to you. Hello, my name is Janneke and I'm from Germany and my question is, do you use AI to generate new ideas for the car? Do you use AI? It's a field that is being investigated. Mm. Um, it, has, it has its uses. I think sometimes you can't, it, it, with AI you've, you've got to teach it, so you need to teach it what it's looking for. So ultimately, you still need, it comes back to, again, having the understanding in the first place of what you're actually looking for. What, what is it that makes a fast racing car? What do you want out of the aero? What do you want out of vehicle dynamics? So yes, we, we, are, we, we do use it and we are investigating it, but ultimately, it all comes down to how much you understand the problem in the first place. Question number two. Hi, everyone. My name is Lorena and I am from Mexico City. And my question is, what do you consider that is the toughest task in your job? What's the toughest task with your jobs? I think that's an easy one. It's not the technical aspect. It's undoubtedly the, the dealing with, with, with the people and trying to manage some of the situations which can occur. I mean, everyone is a 
competitive individual in our environment and they always always want what is best and of course there's always clashes of opinions and trying to manage that in such a way that we can get a productive outcome of it that hopefully leads to to pushing the performance forward is probably the the most challenging aspect from my side. Yeah, I guess sometimes it could be, I mean, especially as you're sort of overseeing things, it could be a case of too many cooks, too many ideas. Let's stand back, just give me one thing if you don't mind. Yeah? It, it's a bit of that. And just also sometimes just, we're, we're such a big team now. I mean, I've got, I've got a lot more people in my department than Ben, and it's, it's a similar thing. Everyone's working towards the, the same goal, but just trying to steer that number of people in the same direction. I mean, how many people in your department? So I've got about 120 Really? Yeah. Ben? I think we're more like about 40, 45. Oh, that's easy. Sort of <laughs> <laughs> right, we've got some more questions here. This is from Roman in Slovakia, who says, is it difficult to be motivated to push the development when you are already at the top with a dominant car? Not at all. I think it's all of us want to improve the performance of the car every day. And that's, I think, for my side, that's where I get the satisfaction from. I've always enjoyed trying to optimize something to get more performance out of it and effectively whether we're winning or whether we're not the process is effectively the same we're always trying to make it quicker and it's just about like I said before it's more how much risk we're prepared to take depending on where our position is right now. Uh, this is from Anthony in the Netherlands who says is it not difficult for a designer to think like an engineer and for an engineer to think like a designer? I don't think there's in our world I don't think there's much difference to be honest yeah because we have people called design engineers, so for, oh, yeah. me, for, for me, they're one and the same. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, this is from Christian in Slovenia, who says, uh, can we expect a revolutionary design for the RB20? I think it's quite tricky to have revolutionary designs now, mainly because the, the regulations themselves are so restricted. So we're so limited in where we can put geometry, what shape that geometry has to be, what radii you're allowed to apply to them. So... The cars, okay, there are differences in concept, but I think there's not going to be something fundamentally sort of dramatically different because it's, you're just not allowed to do it. Don't want to get in trouble. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is from Rodrigo in Mexico. How many hours do you work per day in a non-race week? Normal nine to five? No. no? Unfortunately not. I think it's... Um, I think the overall workday in terms of how many hours you're in the office or how many hours you're thinking about it is regularly at least sort of 12 hours a day because typically, you know, already before you even arrive at work, you'll have checked your emails, you'll know what's happened overnight and you might be thinking about that on the way to work. You typically are at work from, you know, 8 until 6.37 and then, of course, driving home thinking about, oh, what, what can we do to try and improve that or how are we going to resolve that? And then that starts to form the, the basis of the following day. So yeah, it's, it's pretty full on. There's not much time for anything else. I end up with trippy dreams, design dreams. Oh yeah, I mean, I've, yeah, I've, I've, there's a number of times where I've woken up in the middle of the night going, oh right, you know, you, you, your brain's been processing and you, yeah. you sort of come up with an idea in the middle of the night. Or that's why I find like with the, the gym or going out running, there's those times that you actually find your brain starts to process things. And that's when you think, all oh, right, I can maybe do this or we could do that. And that's how you come up with ideas. So yeah, it's just, it's just, there's no real, there's not really sort of hours worked and then you completely switch off. We, certainly I never switch off so it's all we're always going yeah this is from Ashley in the UK who says uh, what has been your favourite upgrade that you have brought that isn't talked about enough 
I'd say, I'd say the exhaust. <laughs> <laughs> that exhaust. That, that was the one I'm probably most yeah. most, most proud of. Yeah. I think, I think the best upgrade is the one that nobody knows about that brings a lot of performance and no one else understands. So it's more the uh, if in, in our from my perspective, it's better that our upgrades are not talked about because then nobody else can copy it. Yes, very nice. That's fair enough. Yeah. Uh, this is from Emina in Bosnia and Herzegovina, who says, "My question is for Ben." How do you decide what is the best setting for each car during the race in order to maximise performance? It's a, it's a good question. So I think we look at um, lap time is, is ultimately the main objective. And so we're always trying to refine the, the setup of the car to minimise the lap time. So we do that already with our simulation tools in advance. And then as we get towards the weekend, we start to include the driver in it within the driver in the loop simulator and then it's to make sure they're comfortable with the setup because the quickest setup in terms of simulation world may not be the quickest when you put a real driver inside. So, and then that process continues to be refined throughout the race weekend because the track conditions change or the tires are different. And then that's down to the race engineering group who are very competent at listening to what the driver has to say, making setting changes on the car, making the driver more comfortable and ultimately that leads to a quicker car. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is from Bart in the USA, who said, uh, who is the what is the most important or valuable thing that you have learned from working with Adrian Newey? Never compromise. I love that. What is it about Adrian that inspired you so much to want to write to him in the first place? I think it's just the way it was just, it was always with him, it's always about car performance. Nothing else matters. And I think when I so when I joined in 2006 and then he arrived, obviously my first Formula One car that I'd worked on, never knew anything about any, never knew anything about how F1 worked. But he just completely changed the mindset about how you go about designing a Formula One car. car. There was no compromise. Everything was always about adding performance, and it's just that that single-minded vision. It's like okay, that's how you do it. How do you think uh, he would cope with? AI possibly helping out. I mean, because he's old school. He is, I like my notebook and pen and I like He to is, but sketch. Adrian's always open to new ideas. Yeah. And anything, and again, it's the same thing. Anything that is beneficial to making the car quicker, he will he will grab and, and, and add on. So yeah, he I think he'd, he'd be quite open to it. This is from Dennis in the Netherlands, who says, for Craig, have you ever had a design that looked good on paper, but didn't work when it was built? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I think, <laughs> absolutely. I think, we, and again, as Ben said, you learn the most from your failures. And you, we've had, I remember, I remember when I worked in aerodynamics, we had front wings or parts of the car that, you know, were good gains either in, in CFD or the wind tunnel and you put them on track and they didn't work anything like that. Mm -hmm. But then again, what you then need to ask yourself is, okay, well, why didn't it work? What was wrong with our tools? And you need to go back, then you go through the process of improving your tools, understanding what the process is so that the next time you, you do a new design, it actually works. So you can always learn and improve even from when what you produce doesn't work. This is from uh, Maché in the UK who says, is design 100% driven by performance or do you take the looks of the car into account as well? Looks don't come no. into it. If it looks horrible, but it makes the car faster, we'll put it on the car. <laughs> yeah, the best looking car is the, is the quickest car. But in general, in general, <laughs> yeah. If it looks fast, it is fast. Uh, this is from Vilta in Lithuania, who says, how important is driver feedback in the performance engineering process? And how do you work closely with the drivers to extract valuable insights? I think that's, that's, that's a super important one. Um, it's about, ultimately, it's the marriage of the vehicle and the machine. 
uh, sorry, driver in the machine, you need to have them in unison such that the driver feels comfortable in the car. And because these cars are so quick, it's so important that the driver is confident and not fear, you know, in fear of the car. So we have to make sure that the two are compatible and the setup will then evolve to suit the driver's characteristics and their driving style. So I guess it's kind of a, a mixed bag. Like, so you've got uh, Daniel Ricciardo that's been doing a lot of sim driving. So then I guess you would take a bit of data and stuff from him. And then you would then speak to Max, speak to Checo to see how they feel on the actual track. Yeah, so we know that the two drivers drive a little bit differently and Daniel sits somewhere in the middle. But we're in a position where we have enough data and enough knowledge that we can start to drive the setup for one drive in one direction and slightly different for the other and Daniel's wise enough to be able to know, okay, I know what Max will need, I know what Checker will need. Huh, he's very talented. <laughs> this is uh, from Laura in Austria. He says, uh, why did you go with Red Bull? Which is an awesome choice, which she actually has said here, which is an awesome choice. But why did you choose to work with Red Bull? I'm gonna go to both of you for this one. Well, I think at the time it was because I was supporting Red Bull in my previous position. And it was a good avenue to get into F1. And I think I also was aware that Adrian, there was there was rumours in the press that Adrian was moving to Red Bull. So I thought, well, if I was going to try and go anywhere, that was a good place to go. I mean, I guess you didn't I can't properly... really say that, can I? I mean, I can, no, technically, you chose to come back in 2017. I, I so did. the, the I question did, still right. stands. So first time, obviously, I didn't make a choice to come to Red Bull. Yeah. But the second time, because I knew what Red Bull meant and what the brand was and sort of how the team operated... I'd also been with Toro Rosso, which was Red Bull's junior team for, for three years. So coming back was sort of just, I would much rather be here than any other team on the grid. That was the answer I was looking for. Lovely. Uh, so we're going to play the HP Poly Challenge now. This is the final challenge, okay? So uh, HP Poly are our partners. They are the leader in video and voice solutions, and they want to challenge our guests. So we have a very nice Bluetooth speaker here, an HP Poly Bluetooth speaker. We're going to play you... A montage. Now, on this montage, there are four voices. You can work together as a team or against each other. It's totally up to you. Team, team as a best. team, okay, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I need you to tell me who the four voices are. They're four people that are very well known here at Red Bull. So can you tell me who they are? Everywhere where we go, we've got very good pedigree, and I apologize. Softer and softer tires. It's quick. I appreciate it's quick. I don't want to put any pressure on, right? But in the previous episode, when we had uh, Hannah Schmitz, we had Anna Groom and uh, Roseanne Elvin, they listened to the clip once. It wasn't the same clip, but they listened to the clip once and they got all four voices. So no pressure. Do you want to give it a go with one listen? I know, I think I know a couple of them. Pedals? Pedals, definitely. Christian. Checker. Checker. I missed the other one. Do you want to have another listen? Yeah. yeah. All right, let's have another listen. Everywhere where we go, got very good pedigree, and I apologize. Softer and softer tires. Let's go for voice number one. Who do you think is voice number one? Do you want to I hear don't know if that was Christian or Checo. <laughs> yeah, let's go one more time. One more time, one more time. Everywhere where we go, got very good pedigree, and I apologize. Softer and softer tires. I think it's Checo, Checo first. Checo, Christian, Christian, question mark, pedals. Yeah, I'm not sure about question mark. Okay, so I can tell you. There is Checo is, is number one. Number two, you've got wrong. It's not Christian. Sounds very similar to Christian. I appreciate that. But it's not. It's Mark Webber. Oh. Yeah. And then number three, no idea? No. No, it's uh, Vid Antonio Liuzzi. Yeah. That was a blast. Yeah, okay, yeah. And the final voice? Paul Monaghan. Uh, there we go. Because you were calling him a nickname. What was his nickname? Pedals. Why is he called Pedals? 
You should ask him. So you scored two out of four. Do you want to hear it again now you know who they are? Yes, please. Go Everywhere we go, got very good pedigree and I apologise. Softer and softer tyres. Can you hear it now? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not going to say that, you know, the girls were better, but the girls but were, were much better. Were. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting thank, to thank the you Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And uh, Talking Ball will be back again next month. <laughs>